So fear is a fear is a funny thing. There's so many so many different types of fears out there. I don't know if you've ever done just a quick Google search just to see all the varieties of phobias out there, but they're, they're, it's amazing. It's amazing some of the things that um that cause certain people to be afraid. This one, this one uh, I thought was interesting, and it's one that many of us probably know, at least to some degree. It's uh, trypanophobia. Trypanophobia. Any hands? Anyone know what trypanophobia is? No, no hands? So, So again, it's one that most of us probably experience on some level. It's actually a fear of shots, a fear of getting a shot. Which, I mean, that is terrifying. So I'm actually glad to know that there is a name to go along with that. I used to give blood regularly, and they, 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 they would come up to me after, after I'm impaled, and they would ask me, how are you doing? How do you feel? It's like, well, you just shivved me, so I, I don't feel great. Um, trypanophobia. Um, here's another fun one. Nomophobia. Nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being apart from your cell phone. It's a fear of being apart from you. Yeah, for, for real. Wait, which I see some of you now going to like check your pockets. So, so I know now who in this room has nomophobia. Um, he, here's another fun one, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of it, but arachabotrypphobia. That, that was horrible. Don't, don't ever try to re- replicate what I just said. Arachabutrophobia, which apparently, if you pronounce it correctly, means that you have a fear of peanut butter being stuck to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> like, how is that a fear? And, it, and, if you, and if you are experiencing this fear, does that mean that you avoid all peanut butter from here on out? So if anyone in this room is struggling with this, I'm not mocking you. Please come to me afterwards. I would just like to know more. I'm just curious. Um, there, there's another phobia that is a fear of words that are too long, words that are too long. And I, I didn't bring it because it's a really long word, and I knew I had no chance of saying it, and so I was afraid of it. Um, fears that are uh, words that are actually too long. And then, and then there's my favorite, one that certainly describes me well, Arithmophobia, arithmophobia, a fear of numbers. Numbers are horrible, horrible things. Uh, There's so many different fears out there. And it's fun to kind of hear some of these more extreme ones because, well, most of us don't struggle with them. and, And it's fun to be able to kind of laugh at. But at the same time, fear can also be a very serious thing. We all have various things that we're struggling with, various fears, deep dreads that actually hound us. Some of us, some of us who are here this morning are actually currently living out of those fears or maybe even potentially crippled by those fears. We all have them. So then how then do we function as Christians in a world that is full of fear? Not, not just things that we could potentially be afraid of, but in a world that actually tries to incite our fears, tries to, tries to exacerbate them, tries to actually increase them. How do we as Christians live in a world like that? I think our passage today will actually help us as we, as we wrestle through this. We've been working our way through the book of Judges. The book of Judges is, a, is an exploration of this time period in ancient Israel between, between when the people have entered into their promised land 
and prior to the establishment of the throne in Israel, the establishment of the monarchy. And during that time, we get to explore this through the lenses of different judges, different judges. These judges are those who, who God raises up to govern his people on a temporary basis. So, so we've gotten to explore these different judges. And last week, we began looking at the judge Gideon. So this week, we'll continue Gideon's story, and we'll look specifically at Gideon's own struggle with fear, but even in the midst of his fear, how he is faithful to what God has called him to in our chapter. So in our passage this morning, then, God himself will provide us with a powerful antidote to Gideon's Midianphobia, Midianphobia, fear of the Midianites. He will see a powerful antidote to Midianphobia. God provides relief for Gideon as he reveals key characteristics about who God is. Who is God and what kind of comfort does this bring to Gideon? So this morning then we'll explore three of these in particular as we discover God through the life of Gideon. Let's begin by looking at the book of Judges then. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, this is Judges chapter 7. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the, in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, uh, say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the, of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And then Gideon came. Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. 
God has given into the hand the into the into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, "Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand." And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 100 men who were, who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of abel in Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to be in your word. Lord, to hear you speak, to, to, to look on, Father, as you display the magnificence of your glory and your splendor. God, I pray that as we, as we are in your word today, Lord, that your spirit would be working in our presence and that he would be applying your words to our hearts that would cause us, that would excite us to praise and to worship you all the more. Father, because you are glorious above all things. God, there is nothing like you. So Lord, please just help us to understand your word this morning and to live it out in our lives. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So our passage opens this morning, early in the morning, with Gideon and with his troops. Um, Gideon in our passage is, uh, is referred to as Jeroboam. That comes from the previous chapter and his conflict with the, uh, with, with the false god of Baal, and where he actually tore down um, Baal's idols. So he continues to be known by this name. We'll see him continue to refer to this name even in the next chapter as well. Um, so, so here Gideon is. Here Gideon is. He's with his troops of 32,000 men, which is a decently significant military force, right? When you're going into battle, until, of course, you realize that this Midianite, Amalekite coalition that has formed, is actually, that they're going up against, is actually 150,000. 150,000 soldiers based on the numbers that we see later in chapter 8. So 32,000 
to 150,000, which breaks down, and again, fear of math, right, arithmophobia. Um, so, 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 so I read it from someone else, which breaks down to about four to one, all right? Their odds are four to one. That's, that's not great. It's doable, but it's not great. So understandably so, I imagine Gideon at this point is feeling some trepidation. I know that if I was in Gideon's shoes at this point, I would be working with my soldiers trying to do everything possible to be prepared to go into battle. But then the surprising thing happens, and the Lord meets with Gideon. And the Lord tells Gideon in verse 2, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The people are too many. What do you, what do you, what do you mean the people are too many? We're, we're already down four to one. We're not too many. We're too few. God, this is when you should recruit more people for us. This is when all of a sudden, like, you should just multiply people. That would be great. You can do that, right, God? But God says the, the people are too many. So God sends two-thirds of Gideon's fighting force packing. Can you imagine if a, Midian, if a Midianite scout had been looking on at this moment? Like, what are they doing? Why, why are all their soldiers leaving? Don't they know we're about to crush them anyways? What's happening? But per the Lord's instructions, Gideon sends everyone home who is struggling with fear and trembling. Struggling with fear and trembling. Now, it, it, is, it is kind of ironic to note here that the, the Gideon sends everyone home who's struggling with fear, but Gideon's not given that option. <laughs> Gideon actually still has to stay and still be a part of the battle. Um, I imagine Gideon is like trying to like sneak out with those guys at this point. God's like, no, stay. Um, and not only that, but they're actually camped at, at Herod, which literally means in Hebrew, which literally means trembling. So, 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 so God takes these people who are struggling with fear and he sends them home. Now, this is also consistent with some of God's own legislation back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, where God declares at that point in time, if soldiers going into battle are struggling with fear, then they, they can be honorably discharged. They can be dismissed from their service. So they leave, which leaves Gideon now at 10,000. 10,000. He's lost two-thirds of his men. But that's still not small enough, right? It's kind of one of those moments where Gideon's scratching his head like, I don't get it, God. What are you doing? Um, it's still not small enough. So, so God provides a second reduction. Gideon takes them down to the stream to drink. And those who drink lapping like dogs may stay, while the rest who kneel are required to leave. So, so Gideon ends up with, with, with this test, with this parting of the ways. Gideon ends up going from 10,000 men all the way down to 300 soldiers, 300 men. He's been reduced to 300. Now, interpreters have tried to make sense of this. What's happening here? Why is it that God chooses this lot to stay and he sends these other ones home? Maybe, maybe it's that this lot of 300 is like, they're like the Navy SEALs of the Israelite army and they're the greatest and most courageous. So those are the ones who are like battle ready as they're drinking the water, prepared to be ambushed and hijacked. Or, or maybe or maybe the other ones who leave, maybe they're the Navy SEALs and these guys who are remaining are the least of the least. We honestly don't know. The text just doesn't really give us any indication about why this group stays and this group goes. 
The only thing that the text does tell us is what God's motivation is in this. And God's motivation for wanting to reduce the forces is so it would be obvious. It would be obvious who actually is accomplishing this victory. So God will reduce this, their forces, and it probably, again, if God is wanting to highlight what he has done, it probably has less to do with wanting to preserve 300 who are the Navy SEALs of the group. It probably isn't really about that. Um, if anything, I imagine these 300 are more likely the Gomer Piles of the group. And again, God is wanting to really emphasize, I'm the one who's going to bring the victory here, not this 300. So what is, God's, what is God doing here then? What ultimately is his motivation? He's cut down the size of their force twice. Why was the Israelite force too big? Why was it too big? I mean, just in the previous couple of chapters where we saw with Deborah and Barak, um, God had actually used a larger force than 300 to bring about victory. And not only that, but in a number of chapters now, God would also use a smaller force than this to bring about his, his, uh, his purposes through, uh, through Samson. He would use only one individual to bring about his victory. So why 300? What is this about 300 that God seems to feel like is the right number? It's not so much that God can't bring victory through a larger force. It's really more that he won't. He won't do it. He refuses to. And it has nothing to do with him, but it has everything to do with Israel. He won't do it because of Israel. Because verse 2 lest they boast over me. Lest they boast over me. God is, God is pruning down their forces to the right number, not to rout the Midianites, but to rout their pride. This isn't about the Midianites. This is about the pride of Israel. This is about their real enemy. God knows their real need, and God will provide the antidote to their real need, not their perceived need. It would almost be like, it'd almost be like, like having, having a bad paper cut that's just nagging you and annoying you. So you go into the doctor to get it, to, to, to have them look at it. Like, look, this paper cut is it's driving me nuts. What, what can you do to help me with my paper cut? Doctor takes a look at the paper cut and says, hmm, that would be bothersome. Are you aware you're missing a limb right now? Like you're, you're, you're bleeding out. Well, yeah, I know. Ninjas in the parking lot. But, but the paper cut is bothering me, right? And totally missing the obvious, the bigger issue. And the bigger issue here isn't the Midianites. It's not this huge force of people who are invading the land, who are, pill who are pillaging it, who have been putting Israelites through horrible times for so many years now. That's not the bigger problem. The bigger problem is Israel's pride, and God is going to deal with their pride. God provides for our real needs. So often in life, we think that the Midianites are our greatest enemy. Well, maybe not too many of us feel like Midianites are our greatest enemy. But, but whatever it is, you fill in the blank, whether, whether it's a boss, whether it's your work, whether maybe it's a family member, whether it's just financial situations, whether it's just hard times, sickness, pain, suffering. We, we look at these things and we feel like these are the biggest things. These are our Midianites. So often we get wrapped up in these and we begin thinking, if God would just fix this, 
If God would just fix this, then everything would be all right. But God has a bigger plan in store for us. He doesn't want to just deal with our perceived needs. He's gonna deal with our biggest, our most crucial needs. When everything is going wrong, when nothing is working according to plan, when it's all falling apart, maybe God is actually just reducing you to 300 because he's going to deal with the real issue. Maybe God is just reducing you to 300. God will provide, but maybe not in the way that you expect. So God provides, but that's not all that we see about God in our passage. He is also gracious. Our God is gracious. Picking back up in verse 9, the troops are reduced, and for some reason, for some reason, in the midst of, uh, of all that's happened, Gideon's down to 300 men. For some reason, he's still struggling with fear. Shocking, right? You, you wouldn't expect that. Uh, for some reason, he's still experiencing fear. So God sends Gideon down into the enemy's camp so that Gideon can see and so Gideon can learn uh, with the promise that, that you will be encouraged. You will be encouraged by going down and seeing. So, so Gideon goes down and, and he looks at the 150,000, right? 150,000. And so he sees, he sees numbers like locusts of warriors down there. He sees that their camels are like the sand of the sea. So at this point in time, I don't imagine Gideon's feeling too encouraged or too comforted. I don't imagine Gideon's all of a sudden feeling emboldened like, ah, now I'm ready to go to battle. Um, and, and, and then all of a sudden, he begins hearing one Midianite soldier telling another Midianite soldier about this nightmare this nightmare that he has. And as he tells it, it almost sounds like a scene out of a cartoon or something. The Midianite soldier describes a loaf of barley bread actually rolling down into the Midianite camp. Right? This, this loaf of barley bread rolls down. It hits this tent, this Midianite tent. And mind you, the Midianite tents, they're, they're not fragile things. They're not, they're not just frail and held together by some twine and some twigs and and all of that. I mean, these are serious structures that were meant to weather the storm and were meant to, to, to be suitable for battle experiences, right? So, so this, this loaf of bread rolls down into the camp, hits this tent, and causes the whole tent to collapse, to flip over, to flatten. I mean, that's unheard of. It would almost be like, like if you decided to go bowling. You get to the bowling alley, and instead of, instead of taking out your bowling ball, you take out a little BB. You're like, this, this is what I will bowl with today. And then you try to throw it. I mean, the BB probably wouldn't even reach the pins, right? I mean, there's very little chance. So that would be similar to this, to this occasion. Here it is. A loaf of barley bread rolls down a hill into the tent and knocks over. And then, I mean, this might add a little bit as well. And I think this is something that we could easily miss in our modern day circumstance. But barley bread in particular, that was, that was the bread that was used by the poorest and the most impoverished of people. Barley was something you would typically throw out to your animals. It wasn't something for that humans really would consume much of unless, again, they were just the poorest of the poor. So in this dream, this loaf of this impoverished, useless loaf of bread rolls down into the camp and takes out one of the most powerful forces. This loaf of barley bread is representative of Israel, impoverished Israel who has suffered under Midianite rule for so long. And it's interesting that one of the Midianite soldiers immediately understands this. 
right? One of the Midianite soldiers is able to interpret this correctly and recognizes that this means doom for the Midianites. And maybe even more interesting, Gideon hears this and Gideon is encouraged. Gideon goes back to his camp and Gideon worships. Gideon worships in, in light of the news. So it's interesting because over and over again through the story of Gideon, going back to the previous chapter, chapter six, we see Gideon struggling with fear. Consequently, Gideon has asked for signs over and over again. Uh, he, he asked for his first sign, and the angel of the Lord responded by, by, by taking an offering and causing it to spontaneously combust before him. He asked for a second sign, and God provides for him some wet, uh, wet fleece. Gideon asked for a third sign, and this time, God provides for him a dry fleece. This time, Gideon doesn't ask for a sign, but God knows what's in his heart. God knows his fear, so God provides a sign nonetheless with this dream. Over and over again, Gideon struggles with his fear, and yet God continues to meet him right where he's at. It's almost, it's almost like when you teach your child to, uh, to jump in from the side of the pool, right? You, you take your child out to the pool. You, I mean, every kid is different. Some kids are a little more daring, and they're, they're, they're more likely to jump on you before you're even ready. Um, but then other kids kind of just struggle at the side. But you don't, you don't get angry when you're teaching your child to jump into the side when they're gripped with, by fear. You stand there, and you continue to patiently wait. And you continue to encourage, and you continue to prod, and then eventually you just kick them off into the pool, right? <laughs> God, um, God is patient. God is patient with Gideon. Even in the midst of this, God continues to graciously meet Gideon where he's at. Our fear is not too big for God's grace. Oftentimes, we know that God will act, but maybe we feel like we have to put our best foot forward first, or we have to show some strength on our side. We have to show some courage. We have to show some wisdom. We have to show something. We have to prove ourselves. But really, in all reality, we're all a bunch of Gideons. We're all a bunch of Gideons. And God is the one who will take that first step towards us. God will move towards us first. It's interesting that even, even in the midst of Gideon's fear, we recognize later on in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith because it goes through all these various characters from the Old Testament talking about their great faith and their great valor. Gideon actually is included in those of great faith in 1132. He's commended for his faithfulness, not because he's without error, not because he's without, not because he's always perfectly bold and courageous in everything that he does, but because he was faithful even in the midst of his fears. God took the first step towards him. Gideon is encouraged. God has been gracious to him. And now God will empower him for what comes next. Gideon rallies his 300, his 300 men, reaffirming the message that God had given him. Verse 15, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he put together the most interesting battle strategy. Most interesting battle strategy. We, we don't know if this strategy actually came more from Gideon or from God. But what we do know is it's a very surprising battle strategy. So, so the men line up prepared to receive their weapons. And they get handed out a jar, a torch, and a horn. 
Okay, so notice at this point, their hands are full. Their hands are full, and not one normal weapon has been mentioned. There is no shield, there is no spear, there is no sword that's mentioned here. Their hands are full of some very curious objects. Now, we, we have many people in our congregation who have served our nation, and I'm trying to imagine what, what you would have thought if you were given a flashlight, and that's all. I, I imagine many people would have, run, would have gone running. Um, so it's interesting that, that, that test number one isn't repeated at this point, right? Okay, so whoever's struggling with fear and trembling, you may leave now. Uh, God doesn't give them that offer again, or else I imagine Gideon would be going into battle all by himself. And so Gideon describes his battle plan to these 300, and he's like, okay, so step number one, we're gonna go to the outskirts of their camp. Step number two, we're gonna blow our horns. And step number three, we're gonna yell, but really loud. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine what, what is going through their minds at this point. Uh, the, 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 the battle strategy isn't quite as crazy as it sounds. Um, so one thing that's helpful to know, the, um, the horns. So, so typically one single horn would represent, would represent a huge, uh, maybe even potentially a, a full army. Just one single horn. I mean, it was with one single horn that Gideon actually rallied all the troops together in the first place. So one horn actually, actually represented typically a vast number of soldiers. Because who, who would waste time bringing in a ton of buglers when you could have warriors going in with swords in both hands and, and all of that? Um, you wouldn't do that. So for them to go in with 300 horns blowing at once would make the Israelite army sound massive. And so if you compound that with the reality that they went in at night, that there was all of this yelling, um, the Midianites would have been largely asleep at this point, so they would have woken up to the confusion of it. Not to mention that the Midianites were actually a coalition with other people that they probably didn't know very well. So they come out of their tents, and all of a sudden they see unfamiliar faces waving swords about and so they begin actually battling each other. Now, in light of that, it could be tempting to, to say that this is some kind of ingenious battle strategy. But, and it is certainly very unique and very creative. But one of the most important things that the text wants us to understand is that God gets all of the credit. God gets all of the credit for it. Verse 7, with 300 men who have lapped, I will save you. Verse 8, I have given them into your hand. This is I. This is the Lord speaking. I have given them into your hand. Verse 15, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Verse 22, even in the midst of the battle, even in the midst of the battle, verse 22, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. This is the Lord who has done it. This is God who has done it. Over and over again, we see that it is God who is accomplishing this. God is the one who wins the day, not the 300 soldiers, not the 300 mighty warriors, not the clever plan from Gideon, not even the failings of the Gideonites, or I'm uh, sorry, of the Midianites. It's God. God's the one who gets the glory in the midst of this. Now, this doesn't mean that Gideon um, has the flexibility to be passive. Gideon still has to go to battle. Gideon still has to prepare. Gideon still has to have a plan. There's still, God still requires obedience from his people, even though he's the one who will bring the victory. 
because God has sovereignly chosen to use his people to accomplish his purposes, his grand purposes, and God will empower his people to do it. God will empower us. Now, sometimes we take that empowerment in the wrong direction, and we feel like, well, if God's going to empower me to do this, then that means I can do anything. That means I can do anything. And so, so we look at passages like Philippians 4.13, which reads, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we rip passages like that out of context to feel as though anything I set my mind to, I can do because God will strengthen me. So, so maybe there are teenagers here this morning who are thinking, I, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. That means I don't have to study for my test on Monday because God will provide, he will empower me in the midst of the test, and I don't have anything to worry about, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking. But believe me, I've tested this one and I've tried. God, God has not empowered me to do anything and everything, God has empowered me to do the things that he has called me to, the things that he has called me to. God has given each of us certain callings. It might be to spread the gospel in our neighborhoods. It might be to, to be a light for Christ in our schools or, or maybe, in the, maybe in the workforce. It might be to raise our children in the fear and the love of our Lord. It might be to encourage and to equip other believers. God has given each of us callings, and he will empower us. He will empower us to strive towards that calling. Now, that also doesn't mean that we'll always see the effects that we want. Just because he has given us a calling to our neighborhood and to, to share Christ with our neighbors doesn't mean that every one of our neighbors is going to become a Christian. It doesn't mean that we're going to go to a neighborhood party and mention Jesus and all of a sudden everyone's going to fall to the ground in repentance and everyone will turn to their lives to Jesus and go out on the missionary field and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you might labor in your neighborhood for the next 30 years praying, developing relationships, and maybe see one person to come to Christ. Just because God has empowered you towards that end doesn't mean you're always going to see the effects that you desire to see from it. But God does empower us to walk faithfully before him. God empowers us to walk faithfully before him, just as he did here with Gideon. Gideon was empowered, and Gideon went to work. Now, that should be encouraging for us also. This should be encouraging because Again, it's really God who's doing the work, right? It's really God who's doing the work, which means that all of this, it doesn't hang on us being the smartest person. It doesn't hang on us being the greatest person or having the best personality or being the most creative or being the strongest or being the, or being the whatever. You fill in the blank. It doesn't hang on that. Rather, it hangs on God, God and his faithfulness, God and his empowerment. Now, all three of these points that we've looked at, God's provision, his grace, his empowerment, they're all for Gideon's good, but there's actually a bigger principle. There's actually a bigger principle that stands behind all three of these. Again, going back to verse two. The people, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me. Lest Israel boast over me. My own hand has saved me. God is zealous for his own glory. God is zealous for his own glory. What's wrong with Israel boasting about themselves? 
The problem is that it robs God of his glory. He's the one who's going to do it. He's the one who's going to show his strength and his might and his goodness and his victory. He is going to be the one who is going to take his name, his great and glorious name, and spread it out to the ends of the earth because he is the most glorious, because he deserves all the glory and the honor, because he deserves all of the credit, because everything exists ultimately for him and for his glory. And therefore, that is the most important thing That is the most important thing in any of this, that he is going to get the glory. There is no purpose. There is no reason higher than that. The Midianite soldier rightly declared that God's the one who's going to win the battle back in verse 14. And how would God do this? God will do this through the most unlikely vessels, through the most unlikely means, because that's how God likes to work. God uses the weak things of this world. He uses the surprising things of this world. Even even Christ himself is an illustration of this. Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3 tells us that that's what he did with Jesus. Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should declare him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And that's Christ himself, the most despised, the most forsaken, the man of sorrows. God the Son took on flesh. He was found as a helpless babe, lived a short life as a peasant in a small corner of the world, betrayed by one of his few friends to die the worst kind of death between two thieves on a cross. That's that's the small life that Jesus lived, the most unlikely of vessels. God reduced him to 300. God reduced him to 300. And yet, and yet, he was also the bread who would conquer all the forces of evil in the cosmic battle that all time and all space would hinge upon. He was the bread. And now, brothers and sisters, God has chosen us as the most unlikely of vessels as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast. Does that sound familiar? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He did not choose the wise things of the world. He did not choose the strong things of the world. He did not choose the noble things of the world. He chose us, and that's amazing. That's amazing. That's something worth worshiping God. So it's not because you're smart. It's not because you're talented. It's not because you're good-looking. It's not because you're wealthy. It's not because you just have so much to offer. 
but it's because God delights to use weak things of this world to accomplish his, moment, his momentous purposes. Because God has such big plans with each and every one of us in this room. God has such big plans for us that he doesn't want any contest about who's doing it and who gets the glory. God will reduce you to 300. God will reduce you to 300 because he loves you and because he gets the glory. And this is the greatest news we could possibly receive. So, so get, your, get your jars, get your torches, get your, get your horns, prepare your best yelling voices because there is a battle coming. And we don't have room for fear because we have a God who will graciously provide the empowerment that we need for the battle that he has called us to. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Beyond all understanding, beyond all belief, God, you are good. Lord, you are gracious. You empower us. Father, you continue to come to us, God, even though we are not worthy. We have done nothing to earn your attention or your kindness or your goodness. But Father, you continue to dispense them upon us without measure. Father, you are so good. Lord, I pray that we would live out of this reality, that we would live out of a reality of gratitude and thanks and, um, and joy, Father, at what you have called each of us to. Father, that we would get the joy of being able to see your hand at work, working powerfully before us, God, and that you would get the glory. Father, we thank you. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our dedication this morning comes out of the book of Jude. Jude. Please rise. Verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good day. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.